So <laughs> let me go ahead and pray for us. Ask God to bless our, our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are in control of all things. You are sovereign and you orchestrate all things for your good, even mics that go in and out and things in our lives that come and go, things that we hope to trust in and we find ultimately that our trust is not something that will those things can uphold. And so we come to you today, we come to you throughout our days and ask that you would provide us something that will not move, that you'll be that God who is the rock. There is no other, the one in whom we rest and we stand and the one that we can trust in and throughout all of the circumstances of our lives, that this incredible message of the gospel has reminded us and teaches us that you have bound yourself to us in your son's death. And so we come to you this morning with great hope that you will change us, that you will make us more like Christ, that our future has this hope that is rock solid in your character and who you are and what you've done and accomplished for us. So guide our time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I, uh, if you were here last week, I did the first few verses of this. And this, this week I'm going to take, a little bit, take us a little bit farther. And then in a couple of weeks I'm going to even go a little bit farther. We'll see how far exactly we get this letter is written by Paul. It's written to the churches in Galatia, in this region, the first missionary journey that he, he took. He goes there, and many people come to know Christ. And then as he's gone now some several years, he writes the letter back to them to address some things that are taking place in the church, in that the gospel that they had received, some others had come in who were Jews, who said, yes, that's fine, but you need to add something else. You need to remember the law. You need to adhere to the law as a necessity for this, and that really assures things. Faith is great, but circumcision is a right from the law, and other things would be necessary for this. And he writes to them to remind them of the gospel and really argue the case and defend the gospel. Let's read 1 through uh, verse 14 this morning. So, the word of the Lord O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying and you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul, as he lays out his argument here in this, in this passage and throughout here the chapter 3 and chapter 4, basically what he does, he draws a line. He says there are two approaches to God. In fact, every man, woman, and child will approach God on one of two means, one of two bases. One is of their own work, something that they bring, something that originated with them, something that's inherent within them that they bring to him. It's a work, it's a merit that builds some sort of standing before God. And that's, in this case, it's the law. It's something that they say, we can do and we can bring this to you and it has value because we did it. On the other hand, he says, the other approach is one of faith. It's one who recognizes, you know, as I come to God, I don't have anything that I can bring that has any value at all. And so I come in faith that what I most need, he will provide. What I don't have, he will give me. What I don't have in my hands to bring to him, he'll place there. And those two approaches to God, one in my own work, one in my own flesh, and the other one by faith is, are mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. And as we come to him, it's one or the other. And he writes to them, he says, it's either this, the works of the law, or it's by faith. One originates in the flesh, the other one originates in the spirit. It, Spirit of God gives us faith to believe. One seeks to find merit or righteousness on our own. The other one looks to some sort of outside source, looks to Christ to be that one. The works of the law, trying to earn our own keep before him is an endless treadmill of trying to maintain our status before him. Trying to find enough good works to maintain that position that we have. Trying to avoid seeing the bad things we've done. They're not seeing anything very rightly. And as Paul writes to them, he says, you need to see there's two approaches here. One approach isn't an approach at all. In fact, you're going to find if you follow that approach of the law, it's a curse. It's only by faith. It's only by trusting in what God would do and accomplish that you will find indeed the life. That indeed is the gospel that I've preached to you. And these folks who have come in and added something to it, wanted to add the gospel, one uh, add the law back in, to it, it ceases to be the gospel. It nullifies the gospel. It takes away its effect on you and in your life and in your community. And so he writes to get them to understand this, to hear them. He's concerned about them. And he builds arguments. But arguments, just not he just wants to win. He wants to protect them. He wants to defend the gospel. And there's a number of things that he has he's mentioned here. Last week, we looked at the first five verses And as arguments, if you will, he brings two things. One is the presence of the Spirit in their life. He says, how is it the Spirit of God, the very presence of God, came to dwell in you? Something you did or something he gave, something he accomplished and that you trusted in? That the Spirit of God, his presence in their lives was a marker, an undeniable reality for them that the gospel that they received and that Paul preached was authentic and was real. The other thing was their life changed, that he said he points to things that had changed in their lives And he said, do you see that? That's an undeniable mark of God's presence, that the gospel is really at work in your lives. And as you return back to this, as you revert back to adding things back in, you nullify, undermine the gospel. But at the same time, what happens internally in your own spiritual life, your relationship with God, as well as your relationship as a community, it begins to dissolve. It begins to come apart. It loses its spiritual vitality. The unity that Christ brings begins to erode. And as you read through the rest of this letter, you find that's indeed what's happening in the church. As legalism seeps into a community, it will divide that community. 
Because it all becomes now one of, of looking at each other and trying to build some status, some merit that we have in and of ourselves. And so these first five verses, he looks at those. But then in this section we're going to look at this morning, we see that there's two more witnesses he calls to, to this argument to them to say, I want you to hear and understand the gospel. The first one, the first witness is Abraham. He wants to look to the Old Testament. So he pulls in Abraham. He looks at his life. More, he looks at his faith. The second witness is the scripture. If you look in verse 8 here, it's interesting the way that scripture is used. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That scripture is personified. It's like the Old Testament is like a person speaking and witnessing about what the gospel is. And what Paul wants them to see is that the gospel that he preaches isn't disconnected from the Old Testament. It's not disconnected from Abraham or the scriptures. It's a continuation of what God has been doing all along. And so he calls these two witnesses to them. The Old Testament as well is used in this section I just read. Um, there's six verses that are cited from the Old Testament in the nine verses. So it's very concentrated area where you, we find the Old Testament being used that he draws on as a witness. And if you think about it, Think about a courtroom scene, and he's calling his witnesses. What's interesting about what Paul does in this situation is he calls the key witnesses of his opponents. He calls the key witnesses that his opponents would bring. They would bring Abraham, and they would bring the law to substantiate their position that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And so he says, no, 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 let's look at those witnesses. Let's see what they really say, what they have to say about the gospel and the necessity or lack thereof of adding anything else to what God would do. And so as Paul lays out his gospel here in this, as he's speaking to a specific situation here, he's dealing with some things and he's doing a couple things. He wants them to hear the gospel, right? I want you to get, I need to retask it. I need to reframe it for you so you understand it because you heard it before, but now I need to Tell it to you in a different way so you'll get it. Why do they need to hear it a different way in a different in this? Because something else has come in. And so he speaks or communicates his gospel in a particular way so as to undermine some of the things that are going on in the legalism that's growing in their midst. So he wants to address and dismantle what lies beneath the surface of the legalism as it's lived out in their lives. And what's important for us, they're writing to this first century audience. And this audience dealt with the situation of, of Judaism and the return to the law of what God said. But we need to understand that this message of legalism, this message of the gospel needs to trump legalism is, is not just for the first century. It's not just for those who find themselves in a Jewish context. It's for any person who recognizes that we in our flesh, we on our own will always try to find laws or rules or categories by which we maintain or build some status before God. That we want something. We want to be able to say, look what I've done. And the gospel says we have done nothing except deserve the opposite. And so legalism, as it comes in, there's a propensity we all have to want to build my own case before God. And so as he writes against them and their issue in that day, same thing as an issue against us in the ways that we try to build our case before God to build an advantageous and, and beneficial kind of situation. Remind you that the law, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's come to them. It's what we do with it. It's what they would do with the law. And so Paul argues against symptoms of legalism, okay? He presents his arguments here against symptoms 
of legalism that grow out. And there's three different ones I think we can see in the text. See, they're kind of in the background to which Paul speaks to, and I think each one of them we can relate to. Each one, we need to hear the gospel to speak to us in the same way. The first one has to do with barriers that are put up in front of the gospel. I'll mention that in just a minute, but there's barriers, and he speaks against that. The second symptom of legalism is that in our own self, we want to differentiate ourselves between each other. It's kind of like, I don't have to maybe be perfect, but if I'm just a little better than the next guy, then maybe my standing before God will be just a little bit higher. And so we want to differentiate, we want to elevate our own view of ourselves before God, and we do that by looking at each other. And as legalism comes in, we see that, and it destroys unity within a body. And the third thing that happens that is a symptom of legalism as it comes in is a symptom of control. As we look at a God, we say, I want to be in control. And we think that good works, we think that things that we do can be a kind of formula to get God to respond to us in the way that we would want. And so that's the third one. Three symptoms. Paul speaks to each one of these and presents his gospel to address each one. The first one has to do with barriers to the gospel. Now, to remind you that as this setting that they're in is Jewish and Gentile, okay? There's Jews who had embraced the Messiah and trusted in Christ, and now they're returning to adherence to the law, namely circumcision for that. And what they were doing was presenting it as a requirement for Gentiles, Okay, so if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be a Christian, circumcision would be required. And so, if you will, there was a narrowing going on of this. You need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And Paul writes against that and says there's nothing in that that's true. The minute you begin to add something to that, you begin to narrow the scope of what God is doing. You're putting unnecessary barriers before the gospel that prevent people from hearing the gospel and responding to it. So that's what he's writing against we need to remember, even as this barriers is a picture that legalism grows these, builds these, that the gospel must remain and is a call for all. And as he looks at this in verse 6, 6 through 9 is this section. We see that Abraham is brought as this witness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we have this character, right, this person from the Old Testament that's brought in. It says that he brings him up. He says that it, how was he justified? How was it that he was made righteous? It says he believed God. And this section, verse 5, verse 6, is connected to the faith that it refers to in verse 5. They're hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, it was counted, it was credited to him as righteousness. And, and then he quotes, he quotes that verse from, from a Genesis 15. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 15. I want to look at this section because the question we want to ask is Paul brings this witness of Abraham is, what is it that, that he's pointing to? What is it that took place in this narrative that he points back to in quotes? The question I want to ask is, what does Abraham believe that, that counts to him this righteousness, this right standing before God? Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward, shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given, or Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. 
Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And then verse 6 is the verse that Paul cites. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteous. So we have this setting, right? Paul, uh, uh, Abraham has been given a, a promise that he's going to have a, a son, not just one son, but multitude will come from him. And in verse chapter 12, there's a blessing that comes on all the nations as it comes through him. But he says here, before the Lord, he goes, I don't have a, an heir. It's going to be this other guy. And God says, no, it's not going to be that other guy. He says, it's going to be your very own son. And he says, not just one son, but you'll have many, a multitude. Look up in the sky. That's going to be your offspring. And the question is, and then the statement is that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What was it that he believed? What was it that Abraham believed? What was the basis? What was the essence of his faith? Was it that he would have a son? Well, yeah. Okay, God said he'd have a son. I'm going to have a son. But there was more to that. It would be a son. It would be a multitude. That there would be, from him would come a whole bunch that would be in his line, offspring that would be from that. Yeah, that he believed that as well. What else did he believe? He believed it would be impossible that, that God would do the impossible. That God would reach over and step into a situation that no one could do anything about except for God and to bring the son through which this blessing would come to the nations, to the families. And so we see that in this, he believed in God for a son, for a multitude. He believed God to do the impossible. He trusted that God was able to do as he would promise. And this promise to Abraham to have a son is inseparably connected to the promise of this blessing that would come through the son that would ultimately fulfilled and be completed in Christ. And so his faith was ultimately that God was able to save. That his faith that God would ultimately be able to provide a son who would be through that son would come this blessing. And so as Abraham, he trusted that God would do that which was impossible to bring about the salvation for him and his people as well for us. And we can look back on that, right? We can see that. And it was this faith that God was able to save. It was this faith that God was able to do whatever it would take was that brought him justification, which caused him to be, be named righteous here. It wasn't something that he earned. It was something he trusted God and received in that way. And so we have the, the great question like, right? Is it, how is it that those before Christ were saved? How is it that they were justified before God? Well, it's the exact same way that we are. We see that the same faith that he exercises, the faith that we exercise. He looked forward to what God would do. We look back on what God has done. And so we see that, that, that there's this understanding that Paul wants them to, to get of this faith that, that, that um, Abraham was justified. He was made righteous before God by faith. Now note this, okay, that he at this point in time in, the, in chronology has not yet been circumcised. That he himself has not received this covenant or the, the command to do that. So he, in some respect, is still operating as, as a Gentile. And so Paul takes this message and he says to them, he says, I want you to see this. This is where you have it wrong. You think this, this lineage of Abraham is somehow connected to either the right of circumcision or this, this ethnic lineage. It's not. This lineage is a spiritual one. It's one of faith that we exercise the same faith that he exercised. It's not about circumcision. It's not about being a Jew. It's about the faith that Abraham had. And you need to see that because the case in point is 
Paul's argument here is that Abraham himself did not meet the requirements that they would have because he, when he was justified. He was not circumcised yet, and yet he's declared righteous. And so he's arguing with him. He says, see, Abraham doesn't meet your requirements for that. Don't return back to that. And God's intentions were more. You see what the problem with this, right, is? The minute we begin to add anything to the gospel in terms of activity, behavior, certain do's and don'ts, things that accompany that, we begin to restrict and narrow the scope of the gospel. And that's what Paul is speaking against. He says, you need to see that this blessing is for all those who have the same faith as Abraham. And in verse 8, it says that this gospel was preached beforehand, and you shall all the nations be blessed. That God's intentions were not just for one or one group of people or a select group, but his intentions that the gospel go to the whole. That the, the gospel would go to every tongue and tribe and people and nations and Paul uses this, this phrase, Gentiles, this nations, which is we translate Gentiles, to understand he's speaking to their context. He's saying, do you get it? You don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. This blessing is for everyone. It's faith by which we receive this blessing that's there. You see what the Galatian church had done? They'd restricted the gospel, the access to the gospel, by adding something to it. He, they had put up barriers which prevented it, and he said, no, that's not God's intention. His intention is that the scope of this would be expanded, not, that it would go out to all. They'd restricted it. They had been stingy with the gospel. They had added to, something to it. And when we do that, we truncate its scope. We shorten its scope. We, brought, we widen or we narrow its scope of what God intends to do in that situation. And because they had become stingy with it, they thought it was up for them to determine as opposed to God to do that. As we think about barriers to the gospel, think about what God was doing there and how the gospel comes in to help even destroy or take care of those barriers, you realize that any law, any rule, any category that we have or we use to somehow differentiate people who should or shouldn't hear the gospel is a barrier. As I processed with this this last week, this idea, I realized that the way I see the world around me, the way I see people oftentimes out of hand, the way I see somebody that's different from me, somebody who's a different idea from me, a different issues, who believe something different than me, the first thing I do is I begin to kind of dismiss them. That the issue itself becomes a kind of lens or screen by which I see that person. And it prevents me even from thinking about taking the gospel with them or talking with them. So I automatically determine in my own life something that God should do. And I think over the course of this last week, we've had some huge issues in our cultural landscape shift and change that are major. And they're real. And they're hard. And they're difficult as we deal with Prop 8 and, and DOMA and all those kinds of things. And now how will we live in this world as real legal changes and the real things there? And it's not like we can just say, well, no, it's not that big of a deal. No, it is a big deal. The Bible does teach something about marriage, and we need to maintain that. However, the challenge for us, as we as believers engage this environment and the culture around us with these shifting kinds of things going on, is how do we hold on to these issues in the right position, but at the same time, not allow the issue to get in the way of the most important issue? That these issues that we need to deal with on some level that, to prevent us from really engaging the gospel with people. 
and a couple questions I've kind of tried to work through in my own life. In fact, as I kind of processed through this, one of the things I did, I asked Bill, I knocked on his door and said, can I ask you a couple questions? Because I don't know what to do with this exactly, but I believe that we, will, we, we do put barriers in the way that we see things. A couple questions for us I think is helpful. How can we keep these important issues from being a barrier for us in moving into the lives of people with opposing views? How can we keep from these issues from being barriers to us? How can we keep people or keep people with different lifestyles and different views from the, being a barrier to us taking the gospel to them? Will the issue be prerequisite? Will they have to agree with us on certain issues before we'll talk to them about the gospel? Or must the gospel precede even addressing those issues? And I don't have any answers exactly how we do that. All I know is that what Paul is saying even as we think about these things, as we wrestle through how to live these out in our setting in this culture, we need to remember that what's most important is what they, is the gospel, is what he is preaching here. And any barrier that we place, anything that would pr- create a disposition for us that would keep us from going to people or talking to people or engaging them is destructive and undermines the gospel. And for him, for Paul, to put barriers in front of the gospel is to counter to its nature, truncates its scope, And it places man in the place of where only God should be. And so it misses the very heart of what God's intention. So this symptom of putting barriers, he speaks against and says, this is a call for all, a blessing for to go to all. The second symptom of of legalism that grows out of this passage, and we see it in, in our own lives, has to do with our desire, our desire for us to use laws or rules or categories to differentiate ourselves between each other or others out there. That somehow what we want to do is create some sort of, you know, difference, some distance between me and the next guy. Maybe I'm not perfect, but if I can present a case that's I'm better than somebody else, then I've got to be in a better spot than I was before. And legalism does that. Legalism, as we take hold of it, as they were taking hold of it, desires to differentiate, to, to elevate ourselves before God and to even among each other. And Paul writes to this and what happens is when we begin to do that when a community begins to live like that then it begins to destroy the unity that's there and what Paul does in these next two verses 10 and 11 is he speaks against that issue by saying everybody's on a level playing field that there are no real differences between people in and left to themselves that they're all relative the only absolute reality is this fact verses 10 and 11 he writes to them For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then he says the same thing in a different angle. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. His statement is this, right? Everybody's on on the same playing field, a level playing field. We're in the same spot. And it is guilty, cursed, judged before God. No one is different. There's no difference that really can be had. All who rely on the works of the law, all who rely on what they bring to the table are cursed. Because, and he quotes this verse from Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be everyone that does not abide by everything that is written in the law, and do them, note the all there, to do everything. And that quotation comes directly out of this setting in the Old Testament Israel. When just before they entered the land, there was a a command that you would set up as you enter the land, you're going to go in and set up an altar. 
And this altar is between two mountains, Mount Ebal, where, where the curses would be stated and affirmed, and the Mount Garzim, where the blessings would be stated and, and confirmed and affirmed and acknowledged by the people of Israel. And by doing this, they were, they were reestablishing this covenant with God. And they would affirm that if I don't do everything that's written in the law, I'm cursed. And of course, you realize that anyone who is saying that realize how is it even possible to truly do this. And so Paul just says it as a blanket fact. Curses everyone that tries to do this because no one can. 100% obedience is what's required. No one can do that. And so the fact of the matter is the status in which you find yourself, the predicament every man, woman, child find themselves in is cursed. Placed before God, judged by him because they have not fulfilled his law in the way that certainly in 100% obedience is there. And then verse 11 says, essentially the same message. It's evident, right? It's self-evident that no one is justified. No one can do this. This is the condition every person before us. And it tells us something about what the law does, right? The law does really has got a couple functions. We'll talk about them next in two weeks. But the function of the law is that it reveals Right? It's like a mirror. It places up before you and it tells you something that's true about you. It's like a scale, right? You jump on the scale. What does it tell you? Maybe not something you really would care to see or to hear. Or a speed gun, right? A radar gun. It might tell you something you don't want. It can't change your state. It can only reveal your condition. It can't do nothing to, reveal, to change. It only says what's true about you. And so what Paul says is this law... As it's set up, it curses sinners of which we find ourselves. And so we find ourselves in this condition, cursed by God, judged by him because of our condition. The law states that before us. Romans 3, Paul says the same thing in a different way. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's a legal situation. We stand before God as the judge, guilty, condemned, without a voice, no legal position to stand except to be guilty. And so as Paul writes to them, he says, you need to see this. There's no differentiation to be had. This is the condition of everybody cursed before God. No matter how many laws you might have done or not done, the condition is the same. The, the ground is level, as it were, below the cross. And so, of course, for them, as he writes to them in Galatia, the church itself internally began to crumble because of the dissension, because of the division, because of the competition and you can read through chapter 5 and you see that all over it. That they begin to divide. And division, dissension, and enmity, and strife, and rivalries. And all those things were growing up and the church was being divided as a result of this seeking to differentiate myself from somebody else. And that's what happens. The gospel is nullified in our midst as that takes place. As we try to establish ourselves, it affects our relationships and this church should begin to crumble. And so will any church, any person that begins to live and try to maintain their basis before God. Because they're on the same ground. I tried this in the first service and it kind of worked. And we'll see if it does. How many of you have seen, don't raise your hand, Gilligan's Island. Have you seen Gilligan's Island? Over, a, over the vacation, my family watched a couple episodes. Because our kids hadn't seen Gilligan's Island. So we had to watch a couple and we watched Gilligan's Island. It is, you know. Here's the storyline, right? Yeah, they're, they're, you know, I'd sing the song, but I won't do that. Okay, they're, they're you know, stranded on a desert island, right? Seven of them, right? The, the crew, they're stranded there. You remember the people that's there? We have a millionaire and his wife, the professor, Marianne, 
the movie star, the skipper, and Gilligan. Okay, that's the seven that's there. Okay, you've got rich people, you have poor people, you have smart people, you have dumb people, you have famous people, and you have not so famous people. She's from Kansas, by the way. Marianne was from Kansas. We learned that in the first episode. Anyway, all kinds of people. Millionaire has his millions. The professor has his smarts. Week after week, they try to get off the island. I watched it for years. They never got off the island. They tried. They had all kinds of resources. It didn't help them. The condition, the status, the predicament was the same for all of them, whether they were smart or dumb, rich or poor, famous or not. It didn't matter. And Paul is saying it doesn't matter what you bring to the table. It doesn't matter what you have. The fact is, you're in the same predicament. You're on a desert island and you can't get off unless somebody comes to you. It's a great picture for us. That's where we are. That's where Paul says you are. Don't try to differentiate yourself. Trust in where you are and trust in Christ. Because what happens is we do this left to ourselves. We want to create a system of laws or rules or categories which function as a means to elevate ourselves in relation to each other. And you know how this works, right? You sit around and you're, you, you see certain sins that, that, that you have and you minimize them. You see sins that other people struggle with and you, you see those really, right? They're emphasized. And we kind of play this little game with ourselves so that I think I'm a little bit better than I am. I think that my sin's not so bad and others are certainly much worse. And that's what happens as legalism slips in because I need to maintain that status on my own. But Paul writes to them and he says, no, our status is the same. And the beauty of the gospel, what it does in a relationship with God, what it does in our relationship with each other, is we don't have to look around. We don't have to compare. We don't have to compete. I don't have to somehow make myself better than you. I look at one source, one place, one reference point, Say, will you change me? And the beauty of that, what it does in relationships, what it does in community, is it calls us to one source. It helps us to see who each other is and to to have better pictures of that and to be able to be honest about who we are. And so you see unity grow. You see that we are able to understand and experience the gospel in community as we don't, as we stop trying to differentiate ourselves. Paul David Tripp wrote this. In his book, Dangerous Callings, he says, No one gives grace better than the one who is deeply persuaded that he needs it himself. No one gives grace better than the one who is deeply persuaded that he needs it himself. And a congregation of people who realize my effort can do nothing and I need God's grace enables us in our relationship with each other to give grace and to receive grace. Instead of division, we see unity and we see growth in that. And so Paul writes to them, And he says, this propensity, this symptom of legalism, of trying to maintain your own keep, of trying to elevate yourself from above others, the gospel comes in and destroys. It weeds that and it takes it out so that you can be unified, so you can experience this, so we realize where we are. So the first to the bears, he says, this gospel is for everyone. To our desire to differentiate, he says, no, you're all the same. There's no real differences. And in verse verse 13 and 14, finally, he gets to this desire for control in our own lives that we want to be in control. And he he points to the finished work of Christ. But he, again, he frames it in a way that's helpful for us as he talks about the curse. Everyone is cursed apart. If you try to follow the law, here someone else has received and taken that curse for us. One of the aspects, I think, that we can see in our own lives of our own legalism is that we desire to be in control. 
is that what we want to do is somehow have something, a law, a formula, some sort of rule, some sort of way we see life or ourselves or what we do or don't do, by which we can get some leverage over God so that he will operate for us on our terms, okay? We want to have control of this sovereign and free being. And so what we do, we say, well, maybe if I do this, maybe if I do this or I don't do that, maybe he'll give me what I want. And he becomes that kind of proverbial vending machine. We say, okay, I'll put this in and maybe I'll get this out. And when we don't, we're disappointed. And of course, our desire for control is very natural. Of course, I don't want what might be coming down the pike. Of course, I'd rather get better results on that test. Of course, I'd rather have that turn out better than I really expect. Of course, I want those things, and I want to somehow get in and control those aspects of our lives. And legalism, laws, rules can be a kind of formula for us to say, how do I get a hold of that? How can I somehow convince God that he should do what I want him to do? And it's a symptom. And I think as Paul addresses the gospel in the background can be can help us understand how to respond to that because what he does is he places before them and before us a picture of the extent of Christ's work for us on our behalf and he uses this cursed language and the first this verse 13 we see as he writes Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us now we might be familiar with that it might kind of run right over the top of kind of our, our minds and not catch it. But that language should be startling. It would have been startling to the first century Jew, any Jew who would have heard that, that any time the Messiah, the chosen one of God, would be somehow associated with being cursed, those two just wouldn't equate. How could the chosen one, the Christ, the Messiah, be cursed? Why does that happen? And so there was an astonishing kind of statement there in that. But for the one who really understands what's going on, as we see that, we see that this chosen one of God was cursed. As we begin to get our hands around what Christ did, the full extent of his work for us, by taking that for us, what happens is two things. First of all, I think we understand that, that anything we add to what he did is futile, right? This infinite work that he did is futile. It doesn't, there's nothing we can even add to that. But secondly... It's offensive to his nature. It's offensive to what he's already done. We can't add anything because he's done everything. It's futile and it's offensive. But as we begin to grasp that, it also brings us around to be able to trust him and to cultivate trust in this one. This passage, as he, as he brings it up, he says, there's, there's a little bit of shift going on. But he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. This language is he's redeemed us, bought us, purchased us out of slavery with some cost that he has done that. And then he, this quotation that's there, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. It says, for cursed is everyone that's hung on a tree. Okay, we can see the similarity there between Christ. But what's going on in the background of this, the Deuteronomy passage? Let me read you the couple verses here. A couple verses in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall, remain, shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. That's his quote, right? A hanged man is cursed by God. So what's happening there in that passage? What's happening in the Old Testament? If you committed a capital crime, it was punishable by death. What they would do to kill you, they would stone you most likely. But then that's not it. 
the stoned body, the corpse, would be gathered up and would be hung from a tree. And what's done, what the reason for that is to display, right? It's a public display that this one who committed a capital offense against God has now been judged rightly. And that justice has been accomplished. And this one has been cut off. This one has been judged by God and cursed by him. And this body hanging in the tree publicly is an image of what was necessary for justice to be accomplished. And so we see the background of that, and now we come to Christ. And Paul says, do you see what was going on there? Now let's take a look at what Christ did for us. Do we see the body hanging on the tree? Yes. Do we see what he did for us? Do we see a picture now of this curse that we deserved was placed up on him? A public display of the very justice of God. A public display of this curse being poured out on him his very own son, the anointed one, the Christ, would receive and take the curse that he did not deserve, the only one who fulfilled the law. And we see this incredible picture of the atonement, the picture of this wrath of God being poured out on his son. And I think as we read through this, look real quick in verse 13, Paul has shifted his tense just a little bit, but there's two personal pronouns. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. What he did wasn't just an historical event, it was. It wasn't just a lesson that that was painted for us, we could see how much he loved us, it was that, of course. But it was an event that's personal, that he died on the cross, he took the curse of God for us, that picture to receive the punishment of God. And so we see this one hanging on the cross, public display, display before him, it reminds us, right, sin is real. Sin is real. When we violate a holy God, it's something real. And punishment is not arbitrary. It's just like, oh, I'll try this. It's not just an example to be made. When we violate a holy God, the punishment is an infinite payment. And thus the cursing language is so necessary for us to understand the gravity and the weight of our own sin before a holy God. And the necessity of one who would take that place, who would pay that payment, receive that punishment on our behalf for us. Somebody had to do that and Christ did. So now the question for us. We see the picture, Paul. The picture of this curse, this one who took the cursed Messiah. How does that help us trust? How does that help us now understand that we don't have to be in control? Well, first of all, we don't have to add because we can't add anything to this incredible picture. It's offensive not to mention futile, but then it's simple, right? As we really see what he did for us, the question then takes us the next step. If he has gone this far for us, why will he not go as far as necessary to protect us? Why do we need to think that we need to protect ourselves from him through some use of laws or some leverage that we would exercise on him? Paul writes it this way in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son for or did not spare his own son but graciously gave himself up for us all how will he not also graciously give us all things in him if he's gone this far how will he not also give us everything we need our desire for control certainly we understand we want to do that but the minute the legalism comes in and we think that somehow i can live out a formula that i can somehow cause god push him 
convince him, show him that I'm worthy of doing what I would prefer as opposed to what he might. The minute we begin to follow that path is the minute we begin to misunderstand the gospel. The minute we begin estranged from that and, and separated from what, not seeing rightly what he's done. As we see this as Paul lays it out for us, the gospel of the cursed Messiah, it calls us to trust and to rest. To go, he's done everything that's necessary for us. This completely free and sovereign run. You know what he's done? He's bound himself to us. He's already obligated himself to our well-being. He said, I will do that. In this language, he uses redeemed. At the end, uh, in chapter 4, he's going to use the picture of adoption. He says, I'm going to make you mine. I'll do all that's necessary. And by faith, as we walk in this, we're able to rest in him, to trust in him, and realize we don't have to add anything. Indeed, we cannot. And so as Paul writes to them, he says, I want you to see this. There's these tendencies, these symptoms of barriers that put up before the gospel. The gospel goes to everyone. Don't allow anything to get in the way of that. Secondly, he says, you want to differentiate yourselves? No, you're all on the level playing field. Unity grows. The gospel does its work in our life as we realize that. And then thirdly, the minute we think we have to somehow get control through some other means apart from trusting in Christ, he says, no, the gospel will come in and remind us again of all that Christ has done, convincing us of our need for what he has done and enable us to trust what he will do. Paul finishes, and I'll finish too, Verse 14, it's a summary statement so that in Christ Jesus, this blessing of Abraham that's for everyone might come to the Gentiles and so that we might receive the promised spirit, he says. As you believe this, as you understand this, the spirit indwells you. The blessing of Abraham comes. We're able to walk in that as a people of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this great truth. Confess our humanity and we confess our fallenness at the same time. Our fallenness to want to take control of our lives. Our fallenness to, to want to, again, elevate ourselves above each other. Father, would you allow your gospel to come in and destroy the ways that we somehow think we need to do that. And remind us of what you have done for us. Father, would you protect us of any ways, any categories that we create that comes from us. That would prevent us from taking the gospel to those around us. It somehow would cause us to be the determiners of who and who shouldn't it go to. And I pray that you would not allow us to in any way put the barriers up for the gospel to go through our lives. That we would truly see this gospel that you have provided for us and be able to rest in this. And that would inform and grow gospel fruit in us and through us. Father, we have needs as a congregation. I lift them up to you. I pray for Tim Bradyhoff's mother with the, the cancers being returned. I do I pray that you'd be with them and bring healing there. Others as well, many who are dealing with, who are suffering with cancer and being treated for that. I pray for Lita White in the hospital. I ask that you would be with her and bring healing to her body. I pray, Father, even as we think about it and begin to wrestle with the shifts in our culture that, Father, our primary mission as your people would be seen through the lens of your great commission, the gospel going forward. Give us great wisdom and courage as we interact with the world around us who continues to shift away from your biblical foundation. Help us to stay and remain there and yet reach out with that truth to the world around us. Pray for the 25-year celebration coming up. Pray that that would be honoring to you. Pray for ministries that of our church, the family promise coming up. We pray for Lynn Andy Shack and his ministry, even as he prepares 
coming up here for the first the start of the year, the school year, many other ministries that we get to be a part of. Father, help us today. Help us today as we walk out of here to be able to rest in this truth and find you to be sufficient so that you will be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand for the benediction.